Welcome to Supplier Experience Live from Hicks, where we explore all the latest topics, trends, and discussion points in the world of procurement, procurement technology, and supplier experience management. My name is Duncan Clark, and welcome to the podcast. Today, we're heading to Boston, and I'm really excited to welcome Kelly Barner onto the programme. For many of you, Kelly needs no introduction at all, but for those that don't know, Kelly is the owner and managing director of Buyers Meeting Point, where since 2009, she's been covering procurement news, events, publications, solutions, and trends, giving her a unique perspective on procurement. Buyers Meeting Point provides the procurement industry with an events calendar, blog, active social media network, and podcast, all of which are trusted sources of information for practitioners and solution providers alike. So that's why I'm really thrilled to be able to speak to Kelly on our podcast about some of these unique perspectives that she's gained, as well as to dive into perhaps the motivation behind producing all this wonderful information for us to enjoy and share. So welcome, Kelly, and thank you for taking the time out to join us today. Hi, Duncan. Thank you so much for inviting me. I'm thrilled to be here. Fantastic. So um, you have established experience of covering the procurement industry. First of all, I'd love to know a little bit more about some of those early days and then the story of what's happened to bring you to where you are today. Absolutely. So the thing that I think will probably surprise everyone most about early days is that there were relatively few voices speaking publicly in procurement or supply chain for that matter. Uh, There were a couple of leading blogs whose voices kind of dominated the space. But to tell you the truth, and I I know I'm dating myself, LinkedIn wasn't as big of a thing back then. And even if it did exist, it was really more of a resume database. Practitioners in particular were not out there trying to establish their brand. They were not speaking. It was still kind of best practice at the time to hold your cards close. Um, And so really the, the dialogue was very suppressed. There was not a lot of different ideas. Um, There was not a lot of discussion. There was certainly no debate. I can promise you that. And personally, I enjoy now so much more. Uh, I was trying to think of a way to explain the difference in feeling between how things were, let's say, 10 or 12 years ago and, and how they are now. And all I could think of was that scene at the end of the Lego movie, the first one for anyone who's seen it, where they're like, don't worry about the plans, just build whatever comes into your head. And the lady takes the banana and sticks it on top of the fire hydrant and they put it on the truck and then they drive it down the street. That's where we are now. So there's there's a proliferation of voices and perspectives across a wide range of topics and people are disagreeing and people are saying, okay, let's stick the banana on the fire hydrant and see what it means for procurement. But that has a way of sparking additional ideas and pulling new people into the conversation. And so as much as things certainly used to be neater and more consistent, and there was sort of like very clear leading best practices or authoritative voices within procurement, I would always choose sort of a wild west, even if it means that maybe there's a little bit more competition for airspace. I'm I'm certainly fine with that, but I think more voices has been very good for our field. Fantastic. And obviously this has given you an enviable insight into all things procurement and supply chain over the years and of course its its evolution. So what for you as a function 
have been some of the biggest changes that, that you've seen? I think for me, there's there's two key things, one on the practitioner side and one on the provider side. So what I've seen on the provider side is that this notion of uh, best of breed ecosystem, this idea about integration, I'm going to say it was probably about five years ago, I started to notice the pattern in my conversation with service and solution providers that they would say, oh, yeah, we can integrate with, you know, fill in the blank other solution. And the first few times it sounded very funny to me because it would be odd to hear a provider talk about another provider that was relatively similar, but maybe with a slightly different niche. And then it happened more and more and more. And now you're having regular ecosystems of platforms and providers and even service providers actively collaborating to say, listen, don't go with the monolith technology solution. Pick best of breed, have a BI layer, run everything through far more strategically, pull together as much data as you possibly can, and then layer, put all of these different solutions on top of it. Now, maybe the methodology for doing that hasn't reached full maturity. I think there's probably still some room for progress there. But to me, the fact that providers are willing to talk about each other means that they have to be educated about each other's solutions, which advances everybody's platform development. So that's, I think, the biggest thing that I've seen on the provider side. From a practitioner perspective, the word that comes to mind is nuance. You know, in the early days, and I, you know, even before being at Fire's Meeting Point, I was working as a consultant and then as a practitioner. I remember ATK coming into the company where I worked and rolling out, this is your six-step strategic sourcing process. I mean, this was revolutionary at the time, and we kind of take it for granted now, but it was it was very cookie cutter, and, and that's not a hit at ATK. Every single formalized strategic sourcing process, six steps, eight steps, 12 steps, it doesn't matter. It made things very cookie cutter. There was a way to do things. There was a path and a process. Now, I think we understand the level of nuance that is required. And so it's no longer, you know, early days, it was how fragmented is your supplier base or how fragmented is your spend? Oh, well, a number above this percentage is bad. You have to try to consolidate or rationalize right? And then we realized, oh my, if we're overly dependent upon too few very large suppliers, we lose our negotiating leverage. There's no innovation. We're not getting to work with any kind of diversity supplier because they tend to be smaller. And oh my goodness, if one of those suppliers goes down, there's no resilience to the network. So we don't have a backup. We don't have an alternate supplier relationship. And it becomes increasingly hard to source because you've pulled all of the spend together into one contract, into one demand bucket. You try to run an RFP on that three years later, every supplier except your incumbent is going to say, yeah, whatever. This is not worth my time. And of course, your incumbent is going to say, yeah, whatever. I got this in the bag. I do not need to worry about this, which is bad for value creation. So I think ideas around what does it really mean to be efficient, right? There's this lovely, productive tension that I feel like we deal with now that, okay, we don't want it to be so efficient that we've driven out all the value, but we also can't have it being sloppy and messy and highly fragmented because then you can't manage that at scale. 
I think the same thing is true of savings, of agility, of visibility. There's always this pull between having a ton of suppliers gets us some things and it costs us in some areas. And then, of course, the complete opposite tr is true at the other end of the spectrum. And I think there's been a realization among practitioners that not only does procurement need to understand each spectrum that they're working on and the tensions that play within it, there's a lot of discussion that needs to take place at very high levels in the organization to figure out where along that dial do you actually want to be for this category at this time in your industry, right? Because that place on the dial moves if you're truly strategic and following the market. Um, and ironically, the two trends that I've observed kind of come together in the sense that we can't do all of these things strategically with nuance at scale if we don't have the right portfolio of technologies available to us, available for us to make available to our suppliers and our stakeholders or distributed buyers. And so it's it's been very nice how the two have come together to enable some really incredible things. Fantastic. And you, you talked there about some push and pull, some tensions. You mentioned earlier about lots of discussion and debates opening up, which is um, really sort of driving those conversations. So I'm going to be a little bit nosy here. I'd love to know any of the standout conversations that you've had that you found really memorable, perhaps are stuck in your mind. And of course, the, the reason why. Yes. And I've been very fortunate to have some amazing conversations. Now, the interesting thing is when I think about the most interesting conversations, you know, in some cases, they come from the places you would expect them to come from. So, for instance, I just recently had Karai Kosei from Gartner join me on an episode of Dial P, and he was amazing. In fact, we got into this very engaged debate about the difference between agility and resilience. And the, the passion and the knowledge that he brings to that certainly is what you would expect from someone that covers supply chain risk for Gartner. So he's definitely example of a memorable conversation. That's one of those where you think you know what you're going to talk about and you realize about 10 minutes in, I can just throw this piece of paper on the floor because that's not how this is going to go. Um, but then I've had some surprisingly influential conversations. And an example of that is a, a call that I had with a gentleman named Arthur Pizor. He actually works for CourseCentric. Um, and he is their facility services category specialist. Now, that as a category of spend has a place very close to my heart. When I was a practitioner, that is what I managed. So I was working for the largest chain of grocery stores up and down the East Coast in the US. So it's pest control, window washing, floor cleaning, grease trap cleaning, waste and recycling, all of these kind of anything you think of as a consumer, what do they have to do? Oh, snow removal in Boston. I can't forget snow removal. And I was interviewing him about trends in the category, and it was let's say early fall 2020. And so with every category, you talk about the impact of COVID. And he made a really interesting point about janitorial services. And it has changed the way that I look at every single service category since. He pointed out 
the janitorial was a category where you would say, okay, I need somebody that can cover all my locations. I need somebody that meets whatever kind of specific service need I have at the facility. They need to be cost competitive. They need to meet certifications. Like if I have some kind of green cleaning solution requirement, they have to prove that they're certified to handle that. But other than that, it was basically a cost play. It was who's going to show up and do the best job most efficiently for the least amount of money at most of my locations to reduce my overhead of managing this category. Okay, enter the pandemic. Now, this category of spend is not only one of the most strategic you're going to work, it's practically an HR concern. Because any of your facilities, let's say they're just B2B, your employees not only need to be safe coming into the facility, they need to feel safe. And so making sure that not only are the requirements met, but they're met in a way that affects the perception of the employees and makes them feel safe coming to work. Because if those employees don't come to work, you know, procurement always talks about wanting to impact the top line. And obviously we imply positively, but if your janitorial services supplier does a lousy job and people have the perception that they're not safe in your office building, in your manufacturing facility, and they don't come in, oh boy, is procurement affecting the top line because if your operation doesn't roll, you're not billing your customers, you're not meeting their demand. And the other thing that he pointed out is that it is no longer a matter of straight cost because the spec and requirements had been expanded. So now it's about who can get the paper goods, who can get the cleaning supplies, who can cover the facilities. Maybe now you need to add some level of air filtration or something. And so you're, the negotiating leverage has changed in this category. It's gone overnight from being all about cost and scale and checking boxes to being highly strategic, perception-based, and truthfully, procurement needing to pull in HR to address signage and, and determine what the new cleaning requirements are going to be. And maybe, depending on your company, maybe you're in multiple states, multiple countries, reopening requirements, cleansing requirements, that's all changing. It's not even a goalpost that you can assume is going to stay in the same place. Then, of course, you extend that over to potentially being B2C, which is the kind of environment I was in. Now, if your customers don't feel like your grocery store is clean, I mean, some things have been automated for a long time. Doors slide open when you walk up. That's not a point of contact. But there are so many touch points in any place that consumers are traveling through. And it's everything from restroom facilities that customers have access to, to what are you doing around pens at the cash register or the, the little buttons on the credit card machine or even the plastic bags that you need to pull to put your apples in them. Um, everyone is touching those points and there needs to be, again, safety is the minimum expectation, but again, the perception of safety and how do you create that for and communicate that to the general public that are coming in as your consumers. Having that conversation completely changed the way that I look at location-based services, professional services, anything where we're bringing in third parties who have to function really as members of our corporate team. And you mentioned there the pandemic. So we've opened the Pandora's box of, of COVID-19 yes. here. 
And of course, there's, there's also things like the uh, Suez Canal and all of these events have meant that procurement has featured even in mainstream news. So it's much more perhaps on the radar of people than it was before. Is this changing some of the themes that you're seeing come through in the industry? Um, is it that uh, is it procurement's time to become more strategic and less focused on tactical things? What are your thoughts around some of the changes that we've seen here? I think it's a it's a good thing that brings with it a challenge. So it's good in the sense that now supply chains and procurement plays an important role in supply chains. People are more aware of us. We've gotten a moment in the spotlight. It, you know, that gives us visibility. I'm sure anybody that works in the field at least once over the last year has had a family member ask why they can't find toilet paper. Right. So all of a sudden, you know, it's regardless of where you work, you're responsible for the fact that your Aunt Mabel can't find toilet paper. But I also think that the challenge that comes with that, and I think the Suez Canal and the Ever Given getting stuck is an excellent example of this. I know I'm being analog here, but it was above the fold on pretty much every newspaper for a very long time. And so there comes with that a certain buzz, a certain hype, right? It's procurement's job to make recommendations and decisions and form strategies based on data. So if you're having a conversation with someone and you're getting vague things like, oh, you know, it's in the supply chain or, oh, you know, that business in the Suez Canal. Yeah, but I'm buying agriculture that's coming from Central America. So a container ship stuck in Egypt is probably not the issue, right? And I think the same thing is true around commodity prices. So lumber, for instance, is hundreds of times more expensive right now. And there are shortages, which is affecting construction, right? The mill work, there's all kinds of levels of lumber that are affecting all different categories of spend. And again, it is procurement's job to have the data. So when the supplier calls up and says, I can't secure the lumber that you need. When the supplier calls up and says, I need to escalate your price by X because my costs are going up by X. We need to validate that X is the right number. We need to be hopefully aware enough to be prepared for that conversation, to know that it's coming. We may need to switch to alternate materials. Um, but the other thing is we know that none of this is forever. And so we also need to have a plan in place so that if you and the supplier agree to an elevated price point, you need to either tie the pricing that is charged to an index so that it automatically de-escalates as the market comes back down, or you need to be actively following the price of lumber. And when it looks like it has come down enough that it has stabilized, you gotta call that supplier back because of course we're all motivated by self-interested things. And so when the supplier realizes they're gonna be in the red to honor your current prices, oh, they're on the phone really fast. Now, when the prices start to come back down, that's one of those, you know, when the phone doesn't ring, you know it's your supplier kind of a thing. And so it's incumbent upon procurement to be monitoring the data. So I would say it's a good opportunity from a high visibility standpoint. It's a good opportunity for us to evangelize procurement and supply chain as career paths. But we need to be careful not to get swept up in the way 
these stories are covered for general consumption because, you know, if it bleeds, it leads. And the same is true in business as it is in, in general news. We need to be well informed, but we need to make sure that we don't allow any of that hype to throw us off of a quantitative fact-based decision-making foundation. That is absolutely critical. And you talked about data there, which, as you know, this is close to our hearts uh, here at Hicks, and it all links to also the whole area of supplier performance, supplier relationship management. And one of the things, as you know, that we've we've been talking about a lot here at Hicks has been the evolution from supplier relationship management to a more holistic supplier experience approach. Has this come through in conversations that, that you've been having? I'd be really interested to know where do you think we're at as an industry? I think we're doing better. So procurement has talked about supplier relationship management for a long time, but we haven't always walked the walk. And I think the challenge that we face right now, and, and this is actually something that I got to talk to Costas about when he joined me for Dial P, is that we can't treat certain suppliers as special and all other suppliers as sort of like useless and throw away. Because if nothing else makes that point, either my story about janitorial services, if you've been bad to that supplier or treated them as transactional, well, that didn't pay off last year. And the same is true for maybe a supplier who happens to sit somewhere in your tail spend, but they provide a critical component and all of a sudden that critical component doesn't come through. You now have a, you know, 0.6% of your total spend supplier keeping your whole operation from rolling. And yet the challenge of that is doing it at scale. So that is where the technology comes to bear. We need to figure out, I think it's a difference between mindset and execution. We need to think about all of our suppliers, you know, we have to love all our children equally. So we have to think about our suppliers with the same level of regard and respect. We have to think about having some type of appropriate relationship with them while understanding that the details of those relationships and the daily operational challenges are not going to be the same. So I think part of that carries over to obviously allowing the technology to do what it can do to, to free us up to use our time right. But at the same time, it's not just saying, oh, well, technology does it, and so we don't need to worry. The technology needs to do it in such a way that even though it's not a human touch point, there's still enough of an almost consumerized experience that there's no resentment on the part of the supplier. So, you know, it doesn't necessarily need to be, I don't know, like having Google doodles to celebrate some holiday of the day, but it needs to be easy to use. There should be loads of visibility, easy access to reporting. It needs to be a very good experience. I mean, there really at this point is no difference between the internal customer experience that procurement needs to create and truthfully, the supplier experience that needs to be created. Uh, you, you have to think about everything the same way. Now, in terms of in practice, there was actually a very worrisome article to me in the Wall Street Journal on Sunday. Um, and this just happens to go back to sort of my roots in grocery. I always see an article on grocery or retail and like, that's what I'm gonna stop and read. Suppliers are having difficulty meeting retailer demand. 
So if an order is for 10,000 units, maybe the supplier can't provide all 10 on schedule. And what a lot of the large retailers are starting to do, you know, and unfortunately, Walmart is like everybody's favorite bad guy. They're certainly listed among this is they're saying, hey, if this continues past a certain point, we're going to start fining you. If you only send us eight and we ordered 10, we are going to fine you for how many days you're delayed, for how many units short of our demand you come. That's really tough. And to me, that's not the same kind of productive tension that we're having with agility and efficiency. This is actually an operational problem of needing to reconcile. Is it problematic for Walmart if they're not able to get 100% of the you know, pickle volume that they need to go in grocery? Of course, it's problematic for them. At the same time, issuing these very harsh blanket statements to the supply base contradicts everything that we're trying to say about how we're going to deal with our suppliers. And yet there's the scale issue. I mean, Walmart has so many suppliers, they can't call everybody up and say, Frank, you were short on pickles again. Come on, Frank, we got to fix this. What are we going to do here? That's not realistic. So I think it's a problem without a solution right now, but it is also evidence that we've not fully made the transition from the old mindset of, we say supplier relationship management, but we mean supplier performance mindset, and this new, more truly relational supplier experience type of point of view. You, you see how people are really thinking and feeling when they're under pressure. And if under pressure, we allow ourselves to revert to very harsh tactics. They put us on one side of the table, suppliers on the other side and say, listen, you have a problem. You need to go fix this. Ugh, to me, that's just not what we're going for. And so, you know, just one example, I, I read that and I worry. And yet everybody has a legitimate problem in this case. And so how do you say whose problem is worse or what's the right solution? I'm not necessarily, you know, playing judge and jury on Walmart by any means. There's simply a recent news story that I think gives us a good scenario to think about. But I do think it's something we need to be aware about. It's sort of like you worked very hard for a long time to quit smoking, let's say, and then an extremely stressful event happens in your life. That's when you need to focus on it more. Okay, new productive habits need to replace that old non-productive habit. I think the same is true here. And we need to be aware of it and talking about it. Back to my point about let's stick bananas and fire hydrants. Every creative approach has to be on the table so that we can all work it out together and figure out, okay, this is a real problem. What are we going to do to resolve it? I think we need to be very much on guard against reverting back to old habits. And another problem, actually, that has come through very much in the commentary that you've given here is that of the difference between the, what you um, spoke about as hype versus reality. And that brings me back to this question of um, thinking about technology or the themes that we're seeing. How do we separate that hype from reality? And what's the future going to bring? Is it the digitalization? Is it automation? What are your thoughts around where we're, the, the direction we're headed? 
So I think the big one, I know everybody likes to talk about AI and machine learning and RPA and all that, but I think first things first, most companies, I won't even say procurement organizations, most companies have an enormous data quality problem today. They either have incomplete data sets or they have poor quality data sets or in the least fair of scenarios, they actually have pretty decent data but nobody trusts it. So you're back to that perception of whether or not the facility is safe. If people don't trust the data, you can layer 14 robots on top of it and nobody's gonna trust what the robot tells them to do, which comes with a huge opportunity cost that you've invested a ton of money in. And so I think for procurement, it's going to be about really becoming a function driven by data. The processes, I feel like we've got. I feel like we've done a very good job working on our processes. I feel like our technology has come a long way and talent from a skills perspective within procurement is definitely on a positive upswing. But data is kind of the one area where I think there's been some question of ownership. And so we haven't necessarily been we haven't had a natural incentive to invest in it, either with our time or with our budget. But I think what most companies are going to start to see is that if they don't have loads and loads and loads of quality data, the ability of a lot of these systems to deliver their ROI is going to be extremely hampered. And I think the biggest thing about that data, so if I had to pick, I'm going to give myself a challenge. This is going to be one of those productive tension things. Would I want a relatively small pool of perfect data, which we all know does not exist, or would I want an absolutely massive pool of messy or unstructured data? And I think what I would choose is the massive pool of messy, unstructured data because technology can be a step on the path to implementing more technology. I think any problem associated with data does have qualitative issues, structural issues, but usually they're systemic. And if the problem around quality or structure is systemic, then there's typically one solution that's going to fix a huge swath of the data or a component of a huge swath of the data all at once. And it takes some time to fix it, but to me, that's scale. You find one really good solution that can improve the quality of a lot of data, and now you've made a huge impact. So I think the the you know data for the sake of analytics is incredibly important. Um, but I also think this idea about democratizing sourcing and buying is going to be huge. There is literally an outcry from distributed buyers saying, listen, I buy everything at home online. I don't need you to hold my hand at the office if I just want a new keyboard or Honestly, even services, there is no reason that services should be held apart as special. Now, that's not all services and that's not all products. I mean, you don't want, I don't know, Joellen in Vegas negotiating your Microsoft contract. Like that's that's not going to work. But maybe it's a relatively small contingent labor requirement or maybe it's a relatively targeted, almost consumerized um software application or subscription service. What's the ROI on procurement slowing things down to just get our fingers in there and make sure that people pick the right thing? I think we need benefit of the doubt to you know, make sure people understand the objective. 
And then truthfully, it's up to us to empower them. So just like we're empowering suppliers with fantastic technology to meet their own needs, we have to do the same thing on the other side. And that's going to have a lot to do with what kind of business you're in. You know, does something like an Amazon business meet your need? Maybe. Maybe something more specifically developed for B2B professional services or, right, there's all different kinds of solutions, thankfully, right, because we have this amazing ecosystem um, of, of offering springing up. And so I think those are going to be the, the two things. And what I'm hoping is that there's a self-contained solution in here that procurement is going to realize how much ROI there is around resolving our data quality. And it's going to take time and really serious, deep thought to do that right. We're going to have to look realistically at our to-do list and say, I can't micromanage them. I need to just, you know, I'm going to set the boundaries and then I'm going to get a technology and I'm going to let them go. And then we'll find some way to do oversight because I need to invest my time over here. That's the greater good for the enterprise. So that's my sense of, of where we're going. I think procurement will focus on centralized things like data. I think we're going to democratize more and more of the sourcing process in particular. Um, and of course, those two things have to come back and meet in us centrally owning supplier relationships. Um, and so if we can achieve those three things, I think actually think it's a huge opportunity for us to build a very positive brand for ourselves internally. Absolutely. I think that's a great note to end on there. And again, thinking about the future with all of these activities taking place, I'm sure that our audience will want to keep engaged with this conversation. So what's next for you, given your various publications, podcasts, live events? What can we look forward to? What's coming up? I mean, certainly Dial P continues. Um, and what I'm actually finding, it's, it's interesting. I, I love people. So I love to study people and notice changes in their habits. Right now, I think there's two things that people generally want because we're all suffering from Zoom fatigue, right? We're all just kind of maxed out. I think people want live. They want live, authentic engagement. They would rather have smoke alarms go off in the middle of a live session than watch something that's perfect but is canned because they want to engage. Everybody with the banana on the fire hydrant wants to use their voice and they want to interact with everybody. So I think there's a, a preference for live events. And I think sooner maybe than anybody expects, depending on location, we're going back to in-person events. I think people are ready to put back on pants the button and go back out into the world and see other people. And I think that's going to happen at different paces in different parts of the world and maybe even different industries. Um, but I think for me, in terms of where I'm going to focus, that connection that I feel like I still have with the practitioner audience is so incredibly important to me. You know, I'm not someone that came up out of marketing or came up out of finance and decided like, oh, there's a void in procurement. I'll just, you know, I'll slide over here. I came up from the trenches. I mean, I was an entry level analyst um, in, in hired services. So I worked my way up and I understand the reality on the ground of the challenges that everyone in procurement is facing. And so I'm very focused on having live discussions when I can, in-person opportunities to see people as they happen. 
but just to make sure that the most interesting conversations that we can have continue to have. And that's whether it's social media or AOP Live with Philip Eidson or Dial P for Procurement with Scott Luton and the guys at Supply Chain Now. It's really important that we all keep talking because that's where the ideas and the solutions are going to come from. Well, I'm really glad that you've mentioned the live events there. And I think um, certainly I've been following Dial P. It's a really energetic, engaging format. So uh, it, it's great to see that you'll you'll continue continue that. And you mentioned social media right at the end there. Um, talking of which, what's the best way for people to engage, follow um, and have a conversation with you? I mean, I'm certainly very easy to find on LinkedIn. Search for Kelly Barner. I'm sure I'll pop right up. Um, but I'm also very active on Twitter. So I'm Buyers Meet Point, Buyers M-E-E-T Point on Twitter. Brilliant. Thank you very much. Well, Kelly, thank you so much for joining us today. If you enjoyed today's podcast, please don't forget to hit the like or subscribe button. Or for more information about us, visit our website, www.pix.com.